Um, as you kind of see from my <laughs> tone a little bit today, this is a, a heavy message, and it comes at me in a lot of different ways. Um, really, seminaries, theologians, pastors have been debating this back and forth for several decades. I mean, I'm keenly aware of it for the last 40, 50 years, but I, I believe it's been something that's been debated over all the way since the beginning of Christ's resurrection. But um, <clears throat> to kind of intro this a little bit, um, just share a little bit about my life. Um, when I was a freshman in college and a senior in high school, uh, <clears throat> I gained 15 pounds. Uh, not because I was in a dorm stuffing my face, but because I worked at a pizza restaurant called Pizza Guys. And the thing with Pizza Guys, I don't know if the slide's still there, <clears throat> um, Basically, when you work at a restaurant, when people don't like the order, they think you messed up, or maybe we did mess up, um, <laughs> you can just throw the stuff away, or we have a section in the restaurant where we just let food pile up. So at a pizza restaurant, we just start piling pizza up on the side, and oftentimes we don't throw it away, we just stack, stack it up at the end of the night, you can take home pizza. So that's basically how I started gaining weight my freshman year in college. Besides, in high school, I used to be a three-sport athlete, and that was no more once I hit college because, you know, you don't have, you can't, you don't, unless you're really good, you don't play sports anymore, unless you find ways to play sports. Anyways, I began to eat a lot of pizza, and there's a time I quit the pizza job, but I still longed for pizza, so I tried to make my own pizza. But I didn't know a couple things. Well, let me tell you how my pizza went. So I just got some dough, got a recipe, made it, slapped it. I used to be able to elevate it and spin it like that. Um, <clears throat> so we, if you're really good, you could just use one hand and flip it and then spin it with one hand and you could spin the pizza out. Anyways, I made some, I got some dough, I got some sauce, I got some mozzarella cheese, but I got the cheapest one I could fine because I didn't have that much money. So I cooked up the pizza and I was done. And I looked at the pizza and I'm like, wow, the cheese didn't melt. So I stuck it back in and it still didn't melt. And so I lifted my pizza and turned it over like this and like all the cheese fell off because I had what? Imitation cheese. It didn't melt very well. I realized, I came to realize real quickly that pizza, quality pizza involves good dough, but very good sauce and high quality cheese. And so in my case, uh, when I made my own homemade pizza, the, the cheese was dry, it was hard, and it fell off my pizza like sp hard spaghetti noodles. And so, <clears throat> um, basically, I had imitation cheese. I didn't have the real thing like the pizza restaurant I worked at. I didn't have this genuine cheese. And so you're like, Pastor Gary, where are you going with this? Why are you talking about pizza as it relates to this passage? Well, if you remember in the book of James, we're going through a series of tests. And the test that we're talking about today is genuine faith, not an imitation faith. That's how I'm getting the imitation cheese in there. I, I, there's a big problem in the church today with imitation faith. Um, it shows itself in a number of ways. And so I want to address this as we are walking through the book of James. We saw that 
James is very concerned for the believers that he's ministering to because they're struggling in trials. They're struggling with temptation. And if you remember, as Mike preached a couple weeks ago, they're struggling with favoritism. Favoritism is a big part, big problem in the church. It's not a problem, it's a sin. Showing partiality. And a lot of times we show our partiality in a lot of different ways. We hang out with the people we like because of how they dress, or how they look, or they're, they're into my kind of things, my food, or my sports, or my th- whatever. And so you show certain people a degree of favoritism. And James is concerned about this. And there's a lot of reasons we show favoritism or why there's struggles. I mean, you've got to remember they're in the diaspora. They've been kicked out of their home. They're not a home. They're living in a foreign land, and they're facing a lot of challenges. You just think about it. When you are pushed out of your home and you're not home, you're, you're caused to what? Be under a lot of stress. And when you're a lot of stress, there's a temptation, what? To blame your husband because you might say it's his fault that we're in this big mess. Or if the husband's not there, you're going to blame the older brother because he's next in line. Um, but when, when there's temptation, you just what? You, you have a temptation to blame. And I also brought this up on Friday Growth Day. We have a temptation to what? Bail. We're just out of here. Um, I think, I imagine in such a hard situation, people might have committed suicide. They just don't want to deal with the hardship of life. A lot of people do that today. When they don't want to deal with life, what? They say, I'm just out of here. Um, <laughs> and so there's a lot of stuff that they're failing. They're facing and they're failing to activate faith in in this situation. So we want to <coughs> track along with what James is concerned with. Uh, a faith that is fake. A faith that is not legitimate. That's not genuine. And he's concerned and he wants them to exercise what? A real, genuine, legitimate faith in Jesus Christ. If you kind of survey briefly in Christianity, in the New Testament, we see that there's a faith that saves in Ephesians chapter 2. We also see that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 7, that we are called to walk by faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we are also called to live in such a way that we please God by faith. So we see different elements of faith, and I'm sure if you scan the scriptures, we can see faith in different ways. But for this particular passage, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. We're going to look at three types of faith. And my hope as we look at this, that this will help you to know what a genuine, biblical, saving, gospel-centered faith looks like, acts like, for your good, for the good of this local church, for the good of others that are in this church and that you might know and relate to at work or at school or wherever you're at, and also for the good of God's Uh, for the good of this city and the RTP, and ultimately for God's glory. And so the three type of faith we're going to look at is dead faith, demonic faith, and dynamic faith. Dead faith, demonic faith, and dynamic faith. And so I want you to pay attention because um, there are answers for a number of challenges as it relates to faith. And I, want, I, I don't say this lightly. I want to say that souls are at stake. Um, eternity um, hangs in the balance as it relates to our theology. And why, why has this been a hard topic for people? I'll just throw out a few, few scenarios really quickly. There are people that, let's say, grew up in the church and they're like, yeah, they went to VBS, they went to camp, they heard sermons. They, they might even like got baptized and may even become a member. And so you see this in their life when they 
young, and then maybe they get married, and they marry someone that's not into Jesus, and they go 30 years without going to church, and they die. And so, like, you look at their life, and they go, okay, they had 20 years, they seem like they're Christian, 30 years, I just don't know, and they died. Is that person in heaven? It's hard to say, especially, like, for those 30 years, they showed no fruit. They showed a dead faith. Or another situation that may be similar like that, oh, my kid went to church when they're little, and they went to college. They just lived the college life, the worldly way, and they got drunk, and they crashed. They died. Three or four years in college, and like, not much fruit in those college years. Was that person saved? That's a big question to ask. Okay? And maybe there's another scenario that's kind of like this. Hey, I grew up in the church, whether it's yourself, your kid, or whatever, someone you know. You know, they went to camp. They, they raised their hand, and someone said they're saved. Or they walked an aisle, and someone said they're saved. Or they filled out a card, and that's all of it. And then they went on just to live their life. Not like a Christian. But the person dies. And they're like, man, but I signed the card. I walked the aisle. Is that person saved? But their life was so fruitless. And this is the fourth category is the most challenging one. This person grew up in the church, maybe even went to seminary because, you know, is this the thing to do? And they went to Bible. And they just had a lot of head knowledge. I guess they don't need to go to seminary today, right? They just get a lot of podcasts. In the they have a ton of knowledge, but little to no life change. What are we to do with that situation? They just know it all. They spelled a lot of stuff. They like to debate and everything. There's nothing wrong with that for a Christian. But I, I, the concern I have is if they lack fruit. There's no growth in their life. There's no love in their life. Um, there's just this information. I, I made this, this came most true to me when I went to Sac State. I, I majored in humanities and religious studies, and I majored in Brad Nystrom. He taught me Old Testament, New Testament, and Greek and everything. He knew the Bible inside and out. I was a two-year-old believer. I didn't know nothing. I was getting killed by this guy because he didn't exercise the faith that came true from the Scripture. He brought in all this higher criticism stuff that sought to <clears throat> debunk the Scriptures. And his heart was really dead to Jesus. If I would say the name of Jesus to him, he, he, he would just cringe. Um, he hated Jesus. But for whatever reason, he was enamored by the, the theology of it. Anyways. There was a whole bunch of scenarios. So I want to walk into this, and those are the, all, some of the possibilities. You can extrapolate different situations. But let's look at what de dead faith looks like. Type number one, <clears throat> dead faith. Um, I'm going to pick up the pace. Picante, that's salsa. We're going to go a little faster here. Um, <clears throat> in James chapter 2, verse 14, James poses a co couple questions related to this, and then he answers them nicely. He says, what good is it, my brothers? So he's speaking... <coughs> Two brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? This is kind of what we're talking about. Is it possible to have and express a faith to make a profession or a confession, whatever word you like, but yet have no works? Can this save um, you? Can you profess but not possess? Can you profess Christ, profess faith in Christ, the facts of the gospel, essentially that Jesus died for sinners, but not have a possession of Jesus Christ in your heart and in your spirit and in your life. So, as James is walking through this, I don't think he's trying to convince unbelievers to become believers. I really believe he's trying to encourage 
believers and reason with them to live out their Christian life, given the context. They're struggling with temptation and trials up to this point, partiality. So, <laughs> through this questioning, he makes it very clear that what? Faith without works is dead, is useless. And in this particular case, in this verse, I believe <laughs> that dead faith is an inactive faith, a life lists faith. Um, <clears throat> and so, a quick summary for these first couple of verses. I'll say this. A verbal confession of the gospel doesn't necessarily mean you internally possess the gospel. You can confess or profess the facts of the gospel without internally possessing and owning it. So, um, there's a couple of distinctions, as you might be thinking, okay, this contradicts my theology. And I want you to say, I'm going to interact with Paul, the Apostle Paul, and James here. Um, and this, so you, so you can see the distinction that they're trying to make. And then we'll look at an illustration that James gives to make it, make it crystal clear here. I get a little bit of help from Stephen Davies' commentary in this section. And he makes a distinction between... What Paul is aiming for and what James is aiming for as they address the question of faith. In Romans, Paul <coughs> defines the basis of salvation for unbelievers. It is by faith. James defines the behavior of salvation for believers. It is by works. The display and the manifestation, the reflection of the gospel in someone's life. Paul writes in theological terms. James writes in practical terms. Paul focuses on faith leading to salvation. James focuses on faith following salvation. So it's the same thing from two different perspectives. I just want you to see that. So hopefully this is making sense. Like I know we're not a certain type of church, but if this is resonating with you, kind of like, yeah, say, hey, pastors, makes sense. If it's not resonating with you, talk to me afterwards and we'll, we'll talk this through or talk to each other. We, I have like 10 discussion questions in Slack. I mean, seriously, you need to be a part of the discussion. This is an important matter that many churches gloss over and don't even want to talk about it. And so it's a, it's a big deal. Unless you just want to say, hey, you're a Christian, but you're just barren in terms of fruit. Um, and just let this person live this way without even questioning it. You're doing them a disfavor. It's like saying, hey, you have cancer, and you know this as a doctor, and you just don't even want to tell your patient. <laughs> you have cancer, and you're just not going to say, that's just terrible. That's, that's some serious malpractice there. <clears throat> okay, moving forward. Dead faith is also indifferent. And here's the illustration that James gives. Um, it's indifferent. Dead faith is indifferent and inactive. And so... <clears throat> In the previous section, as uh, Mike preached a couple weeks ago, <coughs> James used the illustration of the poor and the rich as it relates to two unbelievers. In this case, James is referring to two believers, I believe, in this sense. If you draw your eyes and attention to verse 15, it says, if a brother or sister, brother or sister, what? Refers, it's another language, for believers. So, <coughs> in this situation, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, clothed, okay? Um, that means their clothes are worn out, tattered, right? It's obvious. You can just look at their dress, and they're poorly clothed. It's not just that. They're lacking daily food. They don't have the daily provision to survive. If you look at them, they look skinny. Not because of their metabolism, because of a lack of food. Um, <clears throat> they are not doing well. They're not getting their basic needs met. In verse 6, 
Imagine this in your church setting. These are two members. I believe these are two members at the church, like straight, straight members. They were known to be part of the church. <coughs> and they're dressed poorly. They're lacking food. And verse 6, someone comes up to them and says this, and one of you say to them, go in peace. Okay? In other words, like, God bless you. They, they, another way of putting this, they threw out some Christian knees. They, they said, God bless you, go in peace. <clears throat> Yet, they also go on and say, be warm and filled. These two are verbs with commands that are to be obeyed. So they're at least saying to these people who are not in a good situation, they tell them, be warm and be filled. Knowing that they don't even have the means to obey this command. But the people who are saying this to them have the means to give them clothes. And they have the means to what? Give them food. But they just give them Christian platitudes. They just give them Christian knees. And they go on and they say uh, this. They, they don't practice any kind of, give them any kind of help. They don't exercise faith. Their faith is indifferent in helping them. And the last part says, <clears throat> or is this clear that they, they have clear needs but not willing to do anything about them. So James illustrates this point by comparing faith without works to words of compassion without acts of compassion. So in other words, is your faith any good if you're not going to do anything about to exercise your faith? The theme of the, the book of James is what? Faith in action. In this case, these people are, have a great opportunity to exercise faith, but they choose to be indifferent and choose not to activate their faith. And so James says in verse 17, so also, <laughs> he makes a correlation here, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In verse 17, the word, the phrase by itself refers to the faith. This particular faith that these people have in this church as they're interacting with these people who need help, they have faith by itself. That's it. But they don't have a faith that works. They have a defective, dead faith. So in other words, the faith that they have is dead. It's, they may know about Jesus. They may know about, what, the doctrines of the church. They might believe in this confession and that confession. But they don't have a working faith that's operative. Okay? I'm going to restrain myself because there's like a lot of examples I want to give. But just think about this. Do we throw out Christian platitudes to people when they really need real help? <laughs> the testimony of Christ and his church is at stake every time um, in those situations. So dead faith is both inactive and indifferent. Would you say that a dead faith can save you from eternity, from judgment? The answer is what? No, a dead faith doesn't save. All right? It doesn't save. So if this is you, you, you know information, you may attend church, 
But you look at your life and it's just not active. It's not responsive to the gospel, to the truth. I enc not encourage you. I want to tell you to examine yourself, to see if yourself, to be in the faith. Test yourself. If you're not sure, talk to someone who looks like they're in the faith so they can talk to you about the fact that you may not be in the faith. That's a, probably a good start. You don't want to talk to another person that's not in the faith. They're not going to be able to help you. It doesn't make sense that way. Type number two, um, demonic faith. In James chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, James wants, I really believe James wants to shock his complacent readers, his audience. And he uses an illustration of demons. I mean, just think about it. You're talking to someone and they don't show much faith and you're basically saying, hey, your faith is like a demon. <laughs> what? See my faith like a demon? I went to I went to this church. Pastor Gary was my pastor. Or I went to Stephen Dad, Stephen David was my pastor. You can't say that. Oh, JD Greer was my pastor, man. Nothing can beat that. No, your faith is like a demon. C could you imagine that dialogue? Next time you see someone struggling with not struggling with faith, it's like seem like they don't, you know your faith is kind of like a demon. Okay, let's kind of play this out. Okay, you know someone, they don't show much fruit. And you're walking through verse 18 and 19, and you have someone in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In the next verse, James addresses this someone in verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. James recognizes and affirms this person. They believe in the one God. So this person is basically claiming to be monotheistic. Is everyone that's monotheistic saved? Think about all the monotheistic faiths out there. Islam is a monotheistic faith, kind of. Um, Ju Judaism um, is a monotheistic faith. Um, so, but, but basically, the person is indicating that they have monotheistic faith, they have intellectual faith that they believe in God. Given this Jewish context, they might be saying, hey, you know, you might believe in the Shema. That's Hebrew, I mean, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. Good. You got that part. You got the Old Testament God right. You recognize there's one God. But James goes on and makes this point in the latter part of verse 19. And maybe I'll, I'll tease this out a little bit more. Um, there are a lot of people in that time who knew of Jesus and knew about Jesus. They knew Jesus' mom and Jesus' stepdad and Jesus' siblings. Others would know Jesus' life living around Galilee and Jerusalem. Others were there at the cross when Jesus died. They even saw him die. And other people were there, what? After he resurrected. But not all these people believed in Jesus in such a way they possessed faith in the gospel. They knew about Jesus. They knew the facts. They even, some of them touched and walked with him. And so this would be the notion of saying, hey, information equals salvation. And I don't think it's true. You can have information about Jesus and not have salvation. Okay? I say stupid stuff like this sometimes. You know, you can go to McDonald's, it's not going to make you a hamburger. 
Okay? You can believe and know about Queen Elizabeth doesn't make you a prince or a princess. It doesn't. It doesn't work that way. All right? I, I'm sorry to use that illustration, but most of us, you know, knew she passed away a week or two, and some of us watched her memorial. My whole point is you can know about Jesus and the facts of Jesus and know a ton about Jesus and not be saved and not possess his life in your life. James chapter 2, verse 19b, even the demons believe. Do you know how much the demons believe and know about Jesus? Quite a bit. But let me ask you a question. Are demons saved? No, but they know a lot about Jesus. They know a ton to the point what? They shudder and tremble. But is this knowledge of Jesus going to save the demons? No. So my quick summary here is demons have, to some degree, an orthodox understanding of the gospel. They have right doctrine. But demons don't have orthopathy. They don't have a regenerated heart. They do have emotions. And sometimes in the Christian church, you know, you might go to camp or whatever, and you're really tired, and the speaker says, man, you got to come to Jesus or else you're going to go to hell. Oh, no, I don't want to go to hell. And you get real emotional about it, and you walk the aisle, you raise your hand, and you make this emotional experience. Gospel transformation is not the same thing. I do believe you can hear the facts of the gospel and you can be grieved over your sins and mourn and break over your sins and turn to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. But if it's just this emotional experience and some churches really rig the whole church service to throw you into a frenzy and that's your whole Christian experience. Have a frenzy experience. I say that because <coughs> this word, this Greek word tremble or shudder, literally is translated frizzo, and basically it means to have your hair stand up like a cat, you know, ah, and the hair, you know, spikes out. <clears throat> um, this is what Satan and demons do as they relate to Christ. They're frightened. Demons have the capacity. They don't have the capacity. Demons don't have right practice, all right? They don't have a right heart. So, my conclusion in this section is you can have gospel facts, but that alone doesn't produce genuine faith. Okay? So what does genuine faith look like? Well, we get two examples, and both of them come from the Old Testament. Um, genuine saving faith has, is a dynamic faith. Um, <clears throat> in James chapter 1, verse 20, James addresses object the objector's claim as he's interacting with those who may object with with what james is saying here or those that he's writing to he says this as a test of genuine faith do you want to be shown do you want to be shown you foolish person that apart <coughs> that faith apart from works is useless Okay, in other words, James is saying, hey, to this person, open your eyes. D don't be foolish. This type of faith is what? Empty and defective. The dead faith that we looked at, the demonic faith that we looked at earlier, is a sham. It's fraudulent. 
Okay? Um, this phrase here, faith without works is dead. As you look at this, James is not contrasting two different methods of salvation, the faith kind and the works kind versus the works kind. Instead, he's contrasting two kinds of faith, a living faith that saves and a dead faith that does not. There's two different types of faith. We looked at two examples, dead and demonic faith that don't save. And now we're going to look at a living, saving transforming faith that does save. And the two examples we're going to look at are from Abraham and Rahab. Okay? Um, before I get to that, I want you to just get your mind around the nature of faith because we're talking about faith a lot here. A um, couple examples. Um, <clears throat> faith, you have all kinds of different types of faith. Right? All kinds of different types of faith. But the key is what is your faith in? And is what you're putting in your faith in, is that a trustworthy place to put your faith in? Okay? So I'm going to give you an example of an untrustworthy place to put your faith. Um, two weeks ago, or 13 days ago, I went to the, see the movie Landmark with my mother-in-law because it's a great Christian movie about adoption. And so I went to the movie theater it was Monday night. There's not many people there. It's pretty empty. So I was able to go up, you know, to level F and then all the way into the middle to chair nine. And so, you know, there's the folding chairs that fold down and you sit on them, right? So I thought, you know, good movie theater. I'm going to trust this chair and sit on it. So I sat on the chair. The chair went all the way down. And guess what? Me with my bad back went all the way down and my little tailbone hit the cement. Okay, I trusted this chair to hold, you know, 170 pounds or so, and it failed me. It failed me miserably. I usually don't complain, but this time I actually went to management and complained. I'm getting to know church, not church mutual, but Liberty Mutual, and we're talking about filing a claim here. Um, somebody gave me the idea, if you lived in California, you could sue, sue the whole company. I thought about that, I know, just seriously, but anyways, but we don't live in California anymore, and so I'm just doing a basic claim for the particular injuries itself. Anyways, that's an example of faith in the wrong place, or place in something that's defective. Another example of defective faith, or where you don't want to put, consider your faith, would be where we're in, where's he talking about here? He says this, the man in the jungle bows before an idol of stones and trusts it to help him, but he receives no help. No matter what, no matter how much faith a person may generate, if it's not directed in the right, at the right object, it will accomplish nothing. I believe, <clears throat> I believe may be the testimony of many sincere people. But the big question is, in whom do you believe? And what do you believe? This is a concern here. We are not saved by faith in faith. Okay? We are only saved by faith in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? So <clears throat> here's the two examples coming right at you in the next seven minutes. Oh no, running out of time. Guess you'll have to come to second hour where I can finish the rest. All right? I want you to come to second hour because that's probably where I'm going to hit the rest. Abraham and Rahab, they're two totally different people. Two totally different people. 
Um, Abraham was a Jew. Rahab was a Gentile. Abraham was known to be a godly man. Rahab was a sinful prostitute or harlot. Abraham was a friend of God, while Rahab belonged to the enemies of God. But what did they have in common? They both had a dynamic faith. That in the hall of faith, in Hebrews 11, you find both their names as those who have trusted Jesus Christ to the degree that they were acquitted and justified by faith and by faith alone. And so, a little bit about Abraham. Um, what do I want to cover here? Well, we'll just cover James chapter 2, verse 21. Um, we see his dynamic faith <laughs> exercise <coughs> as we see a one-sentence summary of Genesis 22. In James chapter 2, verse 21, it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac to, <coughs> excuse me, on the altar? So James didn't, I mean, Abraham didn't just say, Hey, I know about you, God. I'm not, <coughs> but he what? Had a God, he had a faith that, what, trusted in God's word. We, he had a faith that obeyed God's word. And to trust God, even if it didn't make sense to sacrifice his own son as a type of burnt offering, tie him up and, and burn him. But, Jay, but what? Abraham trusted God. The spirit of God was working in Abraham to such a degree that the scriptures declares that when Ab Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him righteous and he, Abraham, was called a friend of God. My whole point is that, Jane, that excuse me, Abraham had a faith that was active and responsive. It wasn't dead and it wasn't indifferent to God and his words. See that for what it is. For, for Abraham's sake, he was declared righteous. In other words, he was saved. Abraham, like us, before holy God, we are spiritually bankrupt. <clears throat> and what it means to be counted righteous is literally to say, hey, you were once bankrupt by faith and by the vehicle faith alone. No works can save you. <clears throat> this righteousness that's only given from God has now been credited to your spiritual ledger or account. By faith, that's it. It's a simple faith, but it's a sincere faith. It's a genuine faith. And you'll see there's a few more aspects. It's a surrendering faith. It's a trusting faith. Stephen Davey delineates a few things. Sorry, I'm using D Stephen Davey, but he makes, he's really simple and he makes things super clear. Paul's point is this. In the eyes of God, justification is produced by faith alone. 100% true and 100% biblical. James's point, in the eyes of man, justification is proven by our work alone, how we live out this Christian faith. Both are true. Both are pictures of genuine saving faith. Okay? We also see that a, a dynamic faith is growing. It's not dead. It's not static. If you look at verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works, with Abraham's Faith, active work with his works. And faith is completed by his works. And then we jump down to verse 24. You see the person is justified by 
works and not by faith alone. So in verse 22, we have this interesting Greek word, <coughs> synergeo. It comes from the English word synergize. And so we just see the synergy between faith and work working together. And that's awesome. And that's how it works. And that's what dynamic faith looks like. We also see in Abraham that his faith was what? Made perfect or made complete. Um, <coughs> this idea is, comes from a word picture of a tree that's growing and making progress, is bearing fruit. And so this is very basic. How do you know if a tree is alive? It bears fruit, right? You see apples or pears or whatever kind of fruit that tree is supposed to produce. How do you know a human being is genuinely saved? It bears fruit. When it sees the needs of others, it does something, gives them food and clothing. When it sees someone that's lonely, it goes and makes a friend. When it considers someone who doesn't have the gospel, is not a Christian, they do something about it. They don't just ignore them week after week after week after week after week after week. Year after year after year, decade after decade. When they see someone that goes to church and doesn't seem to bear much fruit for many years or even a few weeks, they care enough to what? Open James chapter 2. <laughs> so true saving faith leads to a dynamic faith. Faith without works is dead. And you can have minimal faith and be saved. I mean, to think about the, the person on the cross. He didn't even have a chance to share his work. But Jesus said he'll be in paradise. Here's a person, Rahab, who comes from a, what, very pagan background. And we see in James chapter 2, verse 26. Oops, not James chapter 2, verse 26. Uh, verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the, two, received the messengers and sent them out another way? We see also later in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. It was by faith. Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. But she what? She showed her faith, her obedience to the Lord God. When we know, and you need to go there yourself to Joshua chapter 2 and I believe six, chapter 6, where she had an opportunity to activate faith by hiding the two spies and protecting them. This was dangerous for her. It was super risky. If she was found out, her head, her life could have been <coughs> taken. But she trusted the Lord, hid the spies, hid and protected God's people. And the Lord counted this faith as a dynamic faith, as legitimate faith, as a saving faith. Um, moving to verse 26, James makes it clear in one statement. He's very good at one statement. Uh, super clear. He says, for as the body, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. James likens dead faith to professing faith without works, to a body without the spirit. Both are useless. Both are dead. Both don't have life. 
Okay. So why does this matter? It matters a ton. And I'll share a little bit, but I don't have time to go on everything. But James, to summarize, James is crystal clear. Faith without works is dead. Easy believism is a term theologians use is dangerous. Easy believism is say, hey, it's this it's the notion that I have information about the gospel and I'm saved without any changed life. Okay? That's essentially what it is. There's a lot of nuances to it, but that's a dead faith. This is probably the most scariest verse in all scripture, and we'll land here. Matthew warns of this, Jesus warns about this in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. <clears throat> this is where I believe and want to say it this way don't be fooled and make the biggest mistake of your entire life. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23 says this Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but, but the one who does, there's action here, does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So this is this person. They confess, Lord, Lord, verbally saying, hey, you're my Lord. <clears throat> Verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? Verse 23, and I will declare... To them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is a fascinating passage in, in a couple ways. They had a right doctrine. They knew of the Lord. They also had right practice. They did things, supposedly for the Lord, or maybe with wrong motives. But they did things. They cast out demons. They, they did mighty works. But what do they not have? They didn't have a right relationship with the Lord. They did not do the will of the Father in heaven. They didn't have a right heart for the Lord. So they had orthodoxy and a warped form of orthodoxy, but they had no orthopathy, a transformed heart saved by the grace of God. They didn't have what theologians call regeneration. This is where in James, I mean, Titus chapter 3 verse 5 refers to it in this way. The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Maybe a simple way to put it. There's no light bulb in there. Anyways, for sake of time, I need to land, but I encourage you to come and let's have a discussion over a number of more questions around this issue. This is a big issue. Big, big issue. Where eternity is at stake. My friends, the gospel is for all people. But the way to heaven and the way to be saved is narrow. How narrow is it? Well, it's only through Jesus Christ, one person at a time. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of what genuine faith 
looks like, how it acts like, and ultimately how it responds to you personally. And there's so much at stake. The kind of membership we have, the kind of community we have is at stake because if the membership is full with a whole bunch of non-believers, no wonder why the church will look like a bunch of non-believers. Or why leaders lead in such a terrible way because they may not be believers, but they have this information. But the information hasn't led to divine transformation. God, I pray, Lord, that you would wake us up. Lord, that you would save us if we're not saved. That you would give us a care for others who are not saved. And for us, that if we're kind of living this kind of, I don't know, haphazard, failing in a Christian life kind of faith, that you would wake us up by this passage, by your Spirit, and by the living Lord, Lord working in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.